Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Orkonen, and today we'll be exploring some of the most prominent mental models for describing reality. That means we'll get into the various ways that people think about what is real, what is the universe, what is the cosmos. We all have a mental model in our minds of what we mean by reality, what we mean by the universe. And I wanted to do an episode where we can build that image of reality piece by piece, starting with what we would believe to be true if we didn't have any history books, any scientific record, if all we had were our own raw perceptions. And then I want to culminate with what the latest picture of reality is based on millennia of scientific discoveries and first-person conscious experiences. Let's imagine a thought experiment. Imagine you wake up one day on an island, totally alone, and all you have is your instincts, your eyes and your ears, your raw perceptions. You don't have any books. You don't have anyone around to teach you what they've learned through their lives. All you have is the first-person experiences that you gather through your own life. What would your model of the universe be? What sort of mental model would you construct of reality? Well, if you're a baby or a toddler, you probably wouldn't have any mental model for reality. You wouldn't even think of yourself as separate. It would just be all one grand experience. And if you're able to survive somehow and you make it to adolescence and adulthood, by that point, you might start to notice some patterns. So you might notice at the most basic level, hey, there's ground below and there's sky above. And you don't have any sense of whether the world's round or flat or what's going on on any deeper level. But you know there's ground below and there's sky above. So the most simple mental model, you can almost think of just drawing a line through the middle of a page and labeling the bottom ground and the top sky. Now that's during the daytime. At nighttime, you might notice that there are all of these incredible stars and there's a moon and there are these other celestial bodies. And so at night, you have similar model. It's ground below, and it's the stars above. This is the most basic model of reality. And people who are in these cultures tend to think of everything as being inhabited by a spirit. So you might have the sun god, the river god, and the ocean god. Everything seems to be magical. Everything seems to be inhabited by this divine energy because all you know is what you can see in front of you and more or less you're living in the present moment. After multiple days on this island, you might start to notice some other patterns. You might notice that the sun rises every morning in the same place, it sets every evening in the same place, and after a longer period of time, you might notice that it gets cold in one time of the year, then it gets warmer, and there's this cyclicality to the seasons, and pretty soon you have a broader mental model that not only includes ground below and sky and stars above, but it also includes some cyclicality that the temperature changes, the sunlight changes, the pattern of heat and warmth changes, and even the way the animals move and where you can find them for hunting or where you can gather berries changes throughout the year. So at this point, you might start to think that there is some order to this world. And maybe you would think, well, there must be something or someone that set this order in motion. And this gets to the geocentric model of reality 
which is that everything is rotating around the Earth. The Earth is at the center. And you can see how people would think this because you've got these celestial bodies moving in patterns, you've got these seasons and days moving in patterns, and you might assume that everything is rotating around us, around the Earth, because that's the vantage point through which you're looking out. Now, if you do some more calculations and you start to, let's say, construct a telescope and you start to notice some interesting things like, for instance, during a lunar eclipse, that the moon is actually between the Earth and the sun, you might start to realize that maybe not everything is rotating around the Earth. Maybe, in fact, the Earth is rotating around the sun and other celestial bodies nearby, the other planets, are also rotating around the sun. This is the heliocentric model of the universe. The heliocentric model is definitely an upgrade from the geocentric model, but it still only describes our little corner of the universe, our little solar system. So what about the rest of it? What about all the other stars that we see in the night sky? Well, if you pay close enough attention, you might notice that over time, the stars are actually getting farther and farther apart. Therefore, the universe is expanding. It's not static like the Newtonian view, but it's actually expanding in real time. And let's say somehow you're able to make some even more precise calculations and observations on this island. You might be able to calculate that this expansion started all the way back 13.7 billion years ago at a big bang. And at that point, everything we see now in the night sky, everything we can observe was all one single unit, the size of an atom or even smaller, perhaps and it popped into existence out of nothingness, and since then, it has been expanding. This is the common Big Bang expansion model of the universe. Now, this expanding universe Big Bang model is a huge upgrade from the heliocentric model because it actually encompasses the entire observable universe. It's not just about our little neighborhood, but it also raises some interesting follow-up questions. So, if we're not the center and the sun's not the center, then where is the center? This gets into Einstein's theory of relativity, which answers, there is no center. It's all relative. And this is pretty intuitive to understand as far as space is concerned. When we look out at Orion's belt, it only looks like Orion's belt when you're looking from Earth. If you're looking at Orion's belt from Jupiter or from some spaceship near the asteroid belt, it'll just look like three random stars. It won't look like a belt. But this is a little bit less intuitive when you think about it in the sense of time being relative. And for time being relative, you have to understand that space and time are the same entity. And there is, in fact, the fabric of space-time that gets distorted by massive objects. So one mental model for understanding this impact that I found really helpful is imagine a bowling ball in the middle of a trampoline and then you roll a tennis ball on the outside. If you couldn't see the trampoline, you would think that the tennis ball is getting attracted to the bowling ball, and there's some gravitational force that's pulling the tennis ball to the bowling ball. But that's obviously not what's happening. What's happening is that the mass of the bowling ball is distorting the fabric of the trampoline, so it appears that the tennis ball is getting pulled to the bowling ball. This is a really good analogy because it shows that we start with something that's two-dimensional, like a flat circle with an object in the middle, and then we add another dimension of depth to it. And that's how you get these warping effects of space-time. It's a little bit harder to imagine what this is in actuality because 
we're essentially distorting a three-dimensional reality, what we experience right now, with yet another dimension, which is the time dimension. And to understand the time dimension, it's useful to just think from the basic concept of how does an apple fall? Why, when we drop an apple, does it fall to the earth? There is something that Stephen Hawking calls the arrow of time, which is that we have to move forward in time. We, as beings, cannot go backwards in time or side to side in the multiverse like we can in space. In space, I can walk forward, backwards, side to side, but with time, we can only move forward. We are trapped in the arrow of time. And so it's not so much that when you drop an apple, it's being pulled to the ground through space. It's more that it's being pulled to the ground through time because the arrow of time means that as we go forward in that arrow, the fabric of space-time is going in the direction towards the mass of the Earth. If we were able to go backwards in time, the apple would fall up. And who knows what would happen if we could go side to side with various parallel universes in the multiverse. So the fact that time is relative and that it's different if you are on Earth as opposed to by Jupiter, where there's even more mass distorting the fabric of space-time, or out in open space where there's not any sort of distortion. This hints at the need for a mental model of reality that's not beholden to the same time we experience. And that's why the next model that I really love, which I think is an upgrade on the traditional relativistic model, is what's called the universe model, Y-O-U-niverse model, by Douglas Hardin. Now, I love this universe model because it's built from first principles and it takes into account our own first person experience of reality, not just this third person, God's eye view, scientific view of reality. And it also takes into account the many layers of emergence of reality. We're most familiar with the macro layer of emergence, which is a human body. You see someone on an island. They have a nice silhouette around them. That's a person. It's really clear. This is what we're most familiar with. But you can also go smaller into smaller layers of emergence, and you can go bigger into bigger layers of emergence, and they're all different emergent phenomena of the same grand process. So when I go smaller than my macro self, I can see that I am made up of organs. That's how my body runs and my organs are dependent on the cells within them, and the cells are dependent on the molecules within them, the molecules are dependent on the atoms within them, and within the atoms there are subatomic particles, and when you look at the subatomic particles, it's almost all empty space. They are so vastly far apart from one another that we really are, in a literal sense, made of the void. We are made of nothingness. And when you go bigger, to macro scale, you can see that I am not just myself, I am also part of my family, right? If my parents didn't exist, I wouldn't exist. And beyond my family, you can go to larger communities, your city, your nation, the whole world, and really every human being is at most your 50th cousin. So we're all related by pretty close degrees when you take a bird's eye view of it. And beyond humanity, we are also connected to all of the animals that we depend on for food and the bees that pollinate the crops that we grow and everything is interconnected in this way. And even beyond Earth, 
there are other planets, other celestial bodies that are made of the same particles and that only are possible for the same reason that Earth is possible, because of the process that got set in motion with the Big Bang. Now, I love this universe model because it really is an embodiment of the middle way in Buddhism, because we're not viewing ourselves as nothingness, as this insignificant speck of dust compared to all the grand planets and stars everywhere, which is oftentimes how Westerners view it. And we also aren't thinking of ourselves as these all-important gods and everything that's smaller in us and smaller layers of emergence are really part of our dominion and aren't we so great and shouldn't I have this smug expression while I'm walking around town? It takes both into account. We are both God and we are nothingness. We are everything and we are nothing. And this gets to our final model of the universe, at least in this section. We'll talk a little bit about how different cultures perceive reality. But the final model I want to talk about, which is really the culmination of all of these models, isn't even something new. It's actually been around for thousands of years. It was developed in the early Hindu tradition in around 1200 BC, and it's called Indra's Net. Here's how Alan Watts describes Indra's Net. Imagine a multidimensional spider's web in the early morning covered with dewdrops, and every dewdrop contains the reflection of all the other dewdrops, and in each reflected dewdrop, the reflections of all the other dewdrops in that reflection, and so on ad infinitum. This is the Buddhist conception of the universe in an image. To me, this is the most sophisticated view of reality because it takes the first-person experience of what it's like to be a conscious being experiencing reality. We're essentially all the same divine being peering through reality through these various keyholes. It might be the keyhole of perception of me, myself as a human or the way a plant perceives reality or the way the void perceives reality or really the way anything perceives reality. It's the universe looking at itself. And Indra's net is a way of describing how all of these various conscious beings are interconnected and all of their experiences are reflective of one another. Another metaphor I like is the starfish metaphor, where a starfish looks like one being, but it's actually a colony. And if you cut a starfish in half, pretty soon you'll have two starfish. They will grow into two separate starfish. And the way a starfish moves is every individual part of that colony needs to decide to move. So it really is this emergent phenomena that a starfish is able to move at all. And you could imagine a situation in perhaps a children's book where a single starfish gets split in two and then the starfish form rival communities. They start fighting each other. They start hating each other. But really, they're all the same starfish. They all came from the same organism. They're all part of the same grand colony. And that's pretty much what we are right now. And why would this be the case? Why isn't everyone just automatically enlightened? Well, it's kind of fun for the universe and the Godhead to forget who it is. It's kind of fun to have this journey where you're discovering that we are different and yet we are all the same. And that's the fun of it. If we all walked around like monks, it wouldn't be nearly as fun. The game wouldn't be worth the candle. 
but the fact that we're able to have all these variant experiences and we can become the predator or the prey, we can become the father or the son, the brother or the hero or the villain, all of these various aspects of what it means to be alive is what makes life worth living. And that's a really important thing to remember that I think people sometimes take themselves too seriously and they want to just turn everything that's bad good, turn everything that's down up, and that would make the game no more fun anymore. Now this gets us to the various way that civilizations perceive reality. The one I just described is closest to the Hindu view of reality, where the universe is a drama. It is this experience of playing these various roles. And so I may be a son and a father and a hero or a marketer or whatever I am in this life. And in the next life, I might be a daughter or a mother or a villain or some other type of role. There are all of these constant roles that we're playing. And the Hindu and Buddhist notion of reincarnation is essentially this notion that once you're done playing a role, you play another role. And you pretty much keep doing that until you've figured out the game, you've reached enlightenment, and that's when you escape from the wheel of samsara, or you decide to stay in it so you can help others along the way find their path to enlightenment. So that really is the Hindu view of what's going on with reality. It is this divine drama of essentially the same Godhead inhabiting these different manifestations and playing roles with one another, and that's the fun of it. This is quite different from the Western view of reality, which is the ceramic model. So the ceramic model is the universe was made. It's made of clay and God is the divine potter and he made the universe thus and so. And therefore it's more important to have the final form of a pot than the elements of what made that pot, the clay itself. And this pervades a lot of Western thought Christianity, a lot of religions speak of this God that created everything, almost like this separate being that created everything from afar, and he rules over the kingdom of heaven, and he breathed the breath of life into Adam and took his rib and made Eve. This is somewhat helpful to think of it that way because the universe is creating more and more of itself. So that is a real aspect, but it also misses a key part which is that there isn't some external being creating everything. It is the only being that exists that's creating all of this. So to separate the one who makes from the thing that is made is actually a false way to think about it. There really isn't much of a separation between form and matter or from the creator and what is the creation. The final view of reality that I really like is the Chinese view of reality, which is the organic model of the universe. And in Chinese philosophy, they often perceive reality as this mega organism. So this is great when you think about emergence because there's all these microorganisms, it gives rise to us at this level of emergence, and then there's this macro organism. So you can almost think of the universe as this massive tardigrade moving all around that is the culmination of everything that's going on in all the lower layers of emergence. And the important thing to know is that none of these is necessarily totally right. They're all different lenses through which to view reality. And I think the most important thing is that if you come from the Western tradition of 
the creator, you know, the ceramic model, the potter making the pot, you should consider the other ways of looking at reality. You should consider the Chinese view of the organic model, the universe as an organism. You should consider the Hindu model of the universe as a drama and vice versa. If you're Hindu, you should consider the Chinese and the Western view. And same thing if you're of the Chinese mindset. Now let's get into the future scenarios. Let's start with the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. The worst case scenario in my mind is that we never find a grand unified theory of everything. So right now we know a lot about gravity and we know a lot about particle physics with the standard model, but we haven't really been able to unify it into one grand theory. And we may never be able to. It may simply be too complex. There may not be one way that everything fits together even better than E equals MC squared. That may be the culmination of our ability to simply describe the functions of reality. And to me, that's not that big of a downside. Really, the worst case scenario is that we fail to realize the interconnectedness of all of us. And so therefore, there's more divisions and we fight against each other and we destroy each other. And this brings to mind a quote that says, where there is two, there is fear. Now let's get into the best case scenario. Best case scenario. The best case scenario from a scientific point of view is that we are able to discover a grand unified theory of everything. And it's as elegant or even more elegant than Einstein's theory of general relativity. However, this may be hoping for too much. It may just be the case that the universe is too complex. So my more realistic best case scenario is that over time, we are able to realize our interconnectedness. We're able to collaborate with one another and we're able to treat each other more kindly. When you consider every person that you encounter to be a manifestation of the Godhead, how would you treat them? How would you treat someone who's angry in traffic and they've totally forgotten that they are part of the Godhead and they're totally taken in by Maya, by the illusion of the world of forms? Would you be angry at that person in return? Maybe you would feel pity for that person? Or maybe you would think this is where this person is on their journey this may be a necessary stage for their personal evolution. And who am I to judge? And this is more the view I've taken recently. And Alan Watts talks about this where anytime he comes to someone who is acting in a way where they've totally forgotten that they're part of this grand being from the Big Bang or even before then, he thinks to himself, come off it, Shiva. I know you're just fooling yourself. So he really looks at someone, a guru will look at a disciple, and they see right through them because they see the Godhead. And I think the more that we can have that attitude towards one another, especially towards people that are on other sides of the, of the world or people who have different political parties, different cultural practices, the more we can have that understanding of our interconnectedness and respecting one another, the better we'll be. Now let's get into the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. The most likely scenario is that 
all of these models are right to some extent and they're all wrong to some extent. And that's because we are viewing reality through different lenses and you can't have any lens that encompasses everything. Even if we knew the exact shape of the universe and exactly when the Big Bang happened, we wouldn't know what happened before the Big Bang or we wouldn't know what could happen in other universes. So there is a limit to how much we can understand ourselves, but that doesn't mean that it's not very useful to have mental models to at least grasp some of the most important aspects of reality. One thing that's important to grasp is that there is so much beyond what we can perceive with our senses. We can only see so many wavelengths of visible light, and we know there's light beyond what we can see. We can only hear so many wavelengths of sound, and we know there are wavelengths of sound that dogs and whales and other animals can hear. So with all of our senses, we're only seeing a small sliver of reality. So I think it's important to stay humble in what we can know and understand that there are likely more dimensions than what we have access to. Therefore, there are probably higher dimensional beings than ourselves. There is likely a being, in my mind, that can traverse time forwards, backwards, side to side. And it may not be some separate being, it may just be the higher dimensional being of ourselves in the higher layers of emergence. So there is so much more for us to learn. So I would encourage you to stay curious, keep asking questions, and if anything, just recognize that we all come from the same place and we should all be kind to one another. And we're all on this incredible ride together. And if it wasn't incredible and worthwhile, it wouldn't be happening. One final thing I'll mention is that I did pull some visuals of each of these mental models for reality, and I'll include them both in the YouTube version of this if you want to watch that, and I'll include it on our social media, on Instagram, at Hence the Future. So if you want a visual of what we've discussed today, you can check it out there. I hope you enjoy this episode, and I'll see you next week. The past, the present, and the future. Present and the